How many of you love animals? I, I think that's about every hand. I'm kind of like you, Margie. I love some animals. I, I do love animals. Uh, there are a few animals that have gotten on my nerves over the years. Uh, a few pets that I've had, and I'll tell you about them. You know, we we keep cats and dogs and maybe goats or horses. Clark and Patty, you know a little bit about goats, don't you? <laughs> uh, any of you ever kept big animals like horses or cattle? Yeah? A few? What about sheep? Anyone ever kept sheep? I've never kept sheep. I I've, uh, don't know a lot of people who have kept sheep. But, you know, in our modern society, we have animals probably most of the time as pets. Isn't that right? Dogs and cats. Not because they do a lot for us. I mean, who's going to drink a dog's milk? Or you know, I, I wouldn't. Um, but we keep them because of their companionship. But over the centuries, through most of the history of civilization, and even up until a few generations ago, families kept animals because that was how they survived. That was how people got through long winters. Uh, if you had a cow or uh, a flock of goats, uh, you could drink the milk if you didn't have anything else. You could... Uh, don't like to think about it because I'm a vegetarian. You could slaughter the animals and eat the meat. And a lot of times that's the only way you could get through some of the, the hard winters was to uh, have those animals as a source of food. The sheep would provide clothes. Um, you get all kinds of resources from the animals. And so because that was a way of life throughout the history of most of this world, we find many, many references to animals in the Bible. Um, cattle, sheep, goats provide food and clothing uh, donkeys provide transportation horses provide transportation of course in Bible times horses were more of an instrument of war um, even even more than transportation in fact the children of Israel were forbidden to have horses because of that it was like today we might think of a an equivalent would be like a tank or a fighter jet you know that was that was the fastest thing they had was a horse and if you were riding on horseback, you were going to war. But there are many, many lessons that we can learn in the Bible from animals. Did you ever learn a lesson from your pets? I have. We have two little kitty cats at home. I think I've told you about our little kitty cats. We like to try to train them. And uh, cats kind of have their own their own mind and their own whims and sometimes they do what you say and sometimes they don't and uh, I think sometimes they know what you want and they do the opposite but when you're working with animals you have to learn to be gentle and you have to learn to be consistent with them you learn to communicate with your pets in a way that they can understand what you mean and and hopefully uh, they follow what you mean and don't do the opposite of what you intend you learn their per particular personalities, their different temperaments, right? And yes, somehow the animals have a knack for learning our temperaments too, don't they? <laughs> Maybe that's why over and over again in the Bible, God compares himself and his leaders to shepherds, people who keep sheep. 
people who spend their lives caring for perhaps the most vulnerable of all of the domestic animals. You know, when God wanted to prepare Moses to lead the children of Israel, of course, he spent 40 years in Egypt learning in the schools of the Egyptians. But that wasn't what was so important in God's school. Where did God send Moses after those 40 years in Egypt? Before he led the children of Israel out of Egypt, into the wilderness. And what did Moses do? He kept sheep. He was a shepherd. And somehow God knew that more than anything else, the best training that Moses could have would be in keeping sheep. And the lessons that he learned there in the wilderness with a flock of sheep, he then put into use as he led the children of Israel, who, you know what, were an awful lot like a flock of sheep. (laughs) Always going astray. Why do sheep need a shepherd? Why can't you just turn sheep loose? I mean, if you have uh, cattle, for example, out in in the Midwest, out in Utah, uh, I have several uh, relatives that live out there and they used to, to herd cattle. And they could turn their herds of cattle loose for weeks, maybe months at a time, and then go round up the cattle and bring them back. Why can't you do that with sheep? Sheep aren't very smart, smart, exactly. They seem to always get into trouble. They like to follow things, and usually they like to follow the wrong thing. And so you pretty much, uh, today, you know, if you keep sheep, you probably put them in a pen, in a fence. But back in those days, pretty much if you had sheep, you had to watch them day and night. And we know the story of uh, Jesus' birth and uh, what was happening on the hills around Bethlehem. There were shepherds watching their sheep at night, sleeping there with the sheep, keeping an eye on the sheep, because if they went back home and left the sheep out there, the sheep were going to die. A shepherd can gently lead his sheep over difficult and rocky terrain, down past the rushing water, down to still, quiet pools of water. It might be difficult for a sheep to follow a shepherd. But if the sheep didn't have a shepherd, the sheep is going to die. You know, most of us are familiar with the 23rd Psalm. In fact, we can turn there. I remember as a, as a child, the very first long scripture passage that I learned was the 23rd Psalm. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup runs over. Surely, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Again and again and again throughout the Bible, God compares himself and the promised Messiah 
to a gentle shepherd who leads us as though we were sheep beside the still waters. In Isaiah chapter 40, Isaiah chapter 40, verses 10 and 11. Isaiah chapter 40, verses 10 and 11. Behold, the Lord shall come with a strong hand, and his arm shall rule for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his work before him. Notice verse 11. He will feed his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs with his arm and carry them in his bosom and gently lead those who are with young. Who is this speaking about? This is speaking about the Messiah who was to come. Not long ago, we studied through the book of Isaiah in our prayer meeting. And time and time again, throughout the book of Isaiah, we see prophecy after prophecy of Jesus. Almost as though, and I've said this before, almost as though Isaiah were writing a gospel of Jesus' life in the Old Testament before it happened. In Jeremiah 31, Jeremiah 31, God again compares himself to a shepherd. Jeremiah 31, 10 and 11. Jeremiah 31, 10 and 11. Hear the word of the Lord, O nations, and declare it in the isles afar off, and say, He who scattered Israel will will gather him and keep him as a flock, as a shepherd does his flock. For the Lord has redeemed Jacob and ransomed him from the hand of one stronger than he. Time and time again, God is going to gather the flock of his people together. Now he's talking about Israel, but today, who are we? Spiritual? Are we not spiritual Israel? You know, in in Ezekiel, Ezekiel chapter 34, we don't have time to read the whole chapter, but we'll look at just a few verses there. Ezekiel chapter 34. The entire chapter, God is speaking about the shepherds that he placed in Israel to guard and to guide the flock. But these shepherds, these under-shepherds, as it were, were not faithful in their duty. So rather than feeding the flock, they began to feed themselves off of the flock. It says in uh, Ezekiel 34 and verse 2, Woe to the shepherds of Israel who feed themselves. Should not the shepherds feed the flock? And verse 11, For thus says the Lord God, Indeed, I myself will search for my sheep and seek them out. God says, even though my shepherds, my under-shepherds aren't being faithful, I will be faithful to my flock because I am the good shepherd. Verse 16, he says, I will seek what was lost and bring back what was driven away, bind up the broken and strengthen what was sick. And in verse 31, he says, You are my flock, the flock of my pasture. You are men and I am your God, says the Lord God. Is it not a beautiful thought to think of God as a loving shepherd? That no matter what may happen, he's got us in his arms. Again in Zechariah, 
Zechariah chapter 10 and chapter 11 speaks of the unfaithful shepherds of Israel. And Zechariah 13 speaks of the coming true shepherd, the Savior, who would be stricken. And yes, when he was stricken, the sheep would be scattered. Who was it that came and said, I am the good shepherd? Turn with me to John chapter 10. Gospel of John chapter 10. And verse 14. Gospel of John, chapter 10, and verse 14. Jesus himself. These are the words of Christ. I am the good shepherd, and I know my sheep, and am known by my own. As the Father knows me, even so I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. Jesus describes the actions of a good shepherd in Luke chapter 15, how though he has 99 sheep safe in the fold, yet he will go out, he will leave those 99, and he will go out to the one sheep who has gone astray, over mountain, through rocky vale, through storm and tempest, until he finds the one sheep. And when he has found it, he will put it on his shoulders and carry it home and call to his neighbors and call to his friends, rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. My friends, with such a picture of our loving Savior, which of you wouldn't want to be part of his flock? Jesus speaks in John chapter 10, verse 16. Other sheep I have, which are not of this fold. Them also I must bring, and they will hear my voice, and there will be one flock, and one shepherd. You know, my friends, so often we take this verse and we apply it perhaps out of context. We, we apply it primarily today and we say, well, the fold of Christ is the Seventh-day Adventist church. And I don't have a problem with that. I'm not, I'm not saying I have a problem with that. But, uh, but I do, in a sense. The fold of Christ is the Seventh-day Adventist church. And these other sheep are in other folds, like the Baptist Church or the Catholic Church or the Pentecostal Church. But back in Jesus' day, there weren't any Seventh-day Adventists or Baptists or Pentecostals or Catholics. No, we had Jews. Jesus was a Jew. We had the Gentiles, the, the, the pagan, the heathen, and all these different nations. Then you had Jesus and his band of followers who, like I said, were Jewish. But Jesus was teaching something different, something more than all of the traditions of Judaism. And Jesus says, other sheep I have who are not of this fold. I imagine him sitting here with his disciples, maybe a small crowd of people who had come to listen to him. And he says, other sheep I have who are not here. Now, if Jesus says, I have them, who do they belong to? Who do they belong to? If I say, I have something, who does it belong to? It belongs to me. Jesus says, other sheep I have. He, the sheep belong to him, but they are not in his fold. They are not there present hearing his words. They don't understand his truth. But then what does he say? Other 
them also I must bring. And they, they too, they will hear my voice. And there will be one flock and one shepherd. Remember those unfaithful shepherds that I spoke about a minute ago in the book of Ezekiel? How these shepherds were feeding themselves instead of feeding the flock. And throughout the nation of Israel, many, many searching souls were finding in the traditions of the scribes and Pharisees and the rabbis a dry well. They were, as it were, sheep who did not have a faithful shepherd. They were being led this way and that way in every way except to the one true shepherd. And Jesus says, they're my sheep. I have to bring them. I have to bring them. And out in the pagan lands, the systems of idolatry were led by greedy priests, pagan priests, who were serving not God, but serving themselves. And those who followed them, they didn't know any better. Jesus says, they're my sheep. I have to bring them so that they will be part of my fold. Satan is behind all of the false leaders in the world, the unfaithful shepherds. He is the one who is the author of selfishness. And it was Jesus' mission to go after these sheep. The innocent ones, the ones who were being victimized by the false leaders, and to bring them from all these other folds, where they were being held hostage, where they weren't being fed, where they weren't being guided in safe paths, to bring them from these other folds and welcome them into the fold where one shepherd would guide them. And I'm not saying that the analogy doesn't apply today, but I think if we take it and place it back then, and then we bring it forward, to today. Who is the shepherd? Who is the leader of true Christians today? Christ. The same as it has always been. And the essence of true Christianity, whether it be the Seventh-day Adventist church or whether it be any church, the essence of true Christianity is to follow Christ through his word. And false systems of religion, whether they be other Denominations of Christianity who many, many denominations are trying to follow, trying to follow as best they can. Many people are trying to follow, but many systems have been set up within Christianity that, like the false shepherds of Ezekiel, are leading people away from Christ and away from his word. But true Christianity leads people to Christ, to the onefold, to the true shepherd. Let me use another illustration. Have you ever adopted an animal? I mean, I talked. almost all of you raised your hands when you said you had an animal. Have you ever adopted an animal who has been abused? I remember one dog that my family had when I was a kid, as a teenager. And if I remember right, he just showed up one day. And he didn't seem to have a home. He just kind of started hanging around, and he was really hungry, so we gave him something to eat. And you know if you feed a stray dog, he becomes your dog. <laughs> and he was the sweetest dog. We called him Licorice. He was a beautiful black lab uh, chow mix, and, and he would he'd stick his tongue out, 
and he just had had uh, it looked like a like a multicolored like black and, and and pink all over his his tongue and and his face was kind of squarish and I thought well he's got to have some chow in him and 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 certainly black lab and he loved to fetch we would throw balls he would he would bring the ball back for hours until he started limping he was he he was a lovely dog every time i would reach down to pet him and he loved to be petted by the way i'd reach down to pet him he would duck down his head like this and i I felt so bad because I'd reach down, and as soon as I touched him, then he would snuggle up to my hand, and we would—I would pet him, and he'd roll over, and I could pet his belly. And he just loved to be petted. But the next time, if I reached down to pet him, he would duck down like this. And I just had to think: wherever he was, whoever were his owners, somebody has hit this dog over and over and over again until it's just a, a reflex. He can't even help himself. He knows—he knows how much I care for him. But he can't help but think, as soon as I reach my hand down, that I'm about to hit him. And I can't, think, I can't help but think how many people in this world are like that. When they come to Christ, and we, we, we believe the best, we believe what the Bible says. And yet when Christ starts to speak to us, we cower just a little bit. It's because of what we've been through in our lives. And when we see other people who are who are acting like that when they come to church or when they're around us, sometimes we have to remember it's not us, it's not the Bible, but maybe it's what they've been through. And over time, God, Jesus, the gentle shepherd, is leading them by paths, by green pastures, leading them to pools of still water. Bringing them to himself. You know, we had another dog about the same time. We had we had this dog before Licorice came. And uh, we called her Honey. She was a, a golden retriever. And she was always so sweet, always so loving, not always so well behaved. <laughs> now, we got her as a puppy. We put her in this little fenced-in area that we had. And in this fence, we had some orchard trees. And my dad had a vineyard. And... Puppies go through this stage where they like to start chewing. And she started chewing, and she discovered that these grape vines coming out of the ground were just the right size to fit in her little mouth. And you wouldn't know after a few weeks, she had chewed every one of those grape vines off about that far above the ground. And you can imagine my dad was not very happy with that dog. <laughs> after she finished with the grapevines, she started in on the orchard trees. And if I remember right, we had to tie her to a chain for a few weeks until she got through this little stage uh, where she was chewing everything off. We tried everything to keep her from chewing. Like I said, she's the sweetest dog. and we, we taught her to come and we taught her to fetch and we taught her to sit and we taught her to stay. And she kind of she kind of caught on. And I wasn't the best dog trainer in the world and neither was the rest of my family. But we kind of got the basics of it. And as long as she was inside the fence with the gate closed, she did all right. But as soon as you opened the gate, if you didn't have your leg right there to keep her inside the fence, she would bolt through the gate and she would run and she would run until you, the last thing you saw was the tip of her tail going over the hill. And you might not see her for two or three days. <laughs> 
And we would call the neighbors and we'd get in the car and we'd drive around the neighborhood and we would run through the fields and try to find her. And sometimes we would find her and sometimes she would come back. Always when she would come back, her hair would be matted and full of burrs and cockle burrs and sticks. And I would have to take her in her pen. By this time, she's worn out, tongue hanging out of her mouth, you know, tail still wagging, you know, take her into her pen and take her brush. And it would take hours, it seemed, to brush all those cockleburs and all those tangles out of her fur. She had pretty long fur, by the way. Um, and we would brush and she would whimper and she would whine because she didn't like the, the tangles being brushed out of her fur. But eventually, we'd get her back to looking like a halfway decent dog. She never smelled great, but that was, that was a different story. <laughs> but uh, we'd get everything brushed out and she would go to sleep and the next day she'd try to get out again and uh, we'd try to keep her from getting out. And that was the life of, of uh, living with that little, little dog. But you know, I can't help but think if that's not just a little bit like human beings. Jesus says he's the good shepherd. He's brought us into the sheepfold. He cares for us. He gives his life for us. But how easy do we want to go, to go astray? How quickly do we want to run through that gate as soon as we have the opportunity and run out into the open pastures and enjoy our so-called freedom? and get covered with the cockleburs and the sticks. And then we come back, and it's painful to be brushed. It's painful to have all those sticks and cockleburs and matted fur removed and brushed out and straightened up and cleaned up. In case you're wondering, there's a reason why Christina and I have two cats and no dogs. <laughs> <laughs> I don't hate dogs. Don't get me wrong, but I love cats. Um, sometimes I'm tempted to wonder in life, why do we go through trials? You know, Christina and I just have been on the on the mend from a, a bug, and uh, I had the bug, and then she had the bug, and, and we're still, we're, we're better, but we're still kind of getting over the tail end of it, and that's just a little thing. But, we all have trials that we go through in life. And sometimes it's tempting to ask, Lord, why? I'm serving you. Why don't you just make all the trials go away? Wouldn't it be so much nicer? Now remember what I said about the shepherd. The job of the shepherd isn't always to make life for the sheep easy. The shepherd sometimes leads the sheep over difficult paths. The shepherd sometimes takes those sheep somewhere it's hard to go in order to get to those green pastures, in order to get to that smooth water. Sometimes the sheep have to have their wool cut off. And it's not always a very pleasant process. But do you ever see a sheep that uh, didn't get their wool shorn off. I saw a picture on the internet of a sheep that had gotten lost. And it's a thousand wonders how it survived, but it was a number of years that it survived by itself 
out in the wilderness and managed to find enough to eat and enough to drink that it survived. But nobody nobody took care of it, and so nobody shore, uh, uh, shore the sheep. <laughs> I can't say that. Um, nobody cut the wool off. And I saw a picture of this sheep, and you could hardly see the head of the sheep. You've seen it. You've seen that picture. You could hardly even see the head of the sheep for all this big ball of wool. And the the feet were just barely sticking out of this big ball of wool. And the sheep nearly died, not because it starved, but because it nearly suffocated, nearly, nearly was crushed by all of this wool. So even shearing the wool off the sheep... Of course, it's good because we we like to use the wool for the for the fabric and the fibers, but it's good for the sheep because if you don't shear the sheep, it won't survive. It can't carry the weight of its own wool for all of its life. If we turn to First Peter chapter four, First Peter chapter four, Peter tells us a little bit why we have to go through some of these difficult times in our lives. Beloved, he says, 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12. Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened to you. But rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings. But when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. As Christians, my friends, we don't expect to live a life, as it were, of a bed of roses. In fact, we can and we must experience, we must expect trials in our lives. And Peter's speaking specifically here of the trial of persecution. That's one type of trial that we receive. But Jesus said in Matthew 5, verses 11 and 12, Blessed are you when men shall revile you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And my friends, when trials come in the form of persecution, when we have to stand up for our faith, we can rejoice. For we know that we are but following in the steps of the Good Shepherd. You know, sometimes trials come in our lives because of decisions that we have made. Sometimes we make our lives harder for us, for ourselves, than they need to be. Really all of us, I'm not talking about any of us, really all of us have made bad decisions. But we can praise God because of Jesus, because of his forgiveness. Still, in this life, sometimes we have to face the consequences of the choices that we've made. But we can claim with With Paul, we can claim the promise of God in 2 Corinthians 12 and verse 9. He says, My grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. My grace is sufficient for you. And sometimes trials come in our lives not because of anything we've done, but because of the great controversy that's raging around us. This was the case of Job. Remember the story of Job? Job had done nothing wrong. But Satan was accusing Job before God. And God says, okay, I will allow you to test him to prove how faithful he is to me. 
And sometimes, and I believe probably for most of us, this is most of the time, God allows the trials in our lives in order to make us stronger. Do you know what this is? It's a weight. I've got several of these at home. And when it's a nice day outside, I like to I like to get outside and walk or jog or something like that. But when it's not not very nice outside, I like to still get a little exercise. As a as a pastor, and before I was a pastor, I was a computer programmer. Either way, most of what I do is sitting down at a desk or uh, in some way somewhat sedentary. So I like to have something to do a little bit of a little bit of exercise with. Why do I get exercise? Now I'm, I'm not a bodybuilder or anything. What's the point of lifting weights? Do you know what happens inside your body when you, when you exercise? Yeah, the muscles contract, but actually as, as you exercise, the little fibers in the muscles, some of those fibers get damaged in the process of exercising. Your muscles also, through using up energy, you build up a little bit of lactic acid in your muscles, which also kind of damages the muscles just slightly. Not in a bad way, but there's a little damage that takes place there. And then when you sleep, as you rest a little bit, your body rebuilds those muscles. But because of the little bit of damage that was there, it rebuilds a little bit stronger. And so you come back a day or two later and you do the exercise again and it damages it again a little bit. But then it rebuilds a little bit stronger. And over time, as you repeat that over and over again, your muscles build and build and build. It's like the signal to grow. When there's a little bit of damage, when there's a little bit of a trial, it grows. When I was a kid, I broke my arm. And uh, for six weeks, I had my arm in a cast in a sling. And uh, it healed and didn't have any, any uh, ill effects, long-term ill effects from it. But I remember when the cast came off and my arm just kind of fell limp like this. And then I held my arms together. And this right arm that was in the cast looked like it had withered away. The muscle was almost gone. Just in six weeks of having it up in a sling, in a cast, the muscle had withered away because I hadn't exercised it. James says in James chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. My friends, the trials in our life are like lifting some weights, if we will think about it like that. Even though it may seem damaging, it may seem hard, it may seem like, why do I have to go through this again? Every time we go through it, every time we exercise that faith in God, it gets a little bit stronger. And as we go through those little trials day by day, we're building those muscles. And when the big trials come, we'll be prepared to go through by faith. Job declares this. Job talks about this in Job 23 and verse 10. Speaking of God, Job says, but he knows the way that I take. When he has tested me, I shall come forth as gold. To mix the metaphor a little bit, 
we can go to Isaiah chapter 64. This is the same concept in a different metaphor. Isaiah chapter 64 and verse 8. But now, O Lord, you are our father and we are the clay. And you are our potter and we all are the work of your hand. Do you know how a potter makes a vessel of clay? The potter takes that lump of clay and he works it and he works it and he works it. He kneads it this way and he kneads it that way and he smashes it down on the wheel and he turns it around and he brings it up and he smashes it back down. And all the while he's feeling that that clay goes through his hands. He's feeling for all those little lumps and he's squishing out all those little lumps and he's working it up and down and back and forth and in and out and squishing it and pounding it and kneading it until finally that clay becomes pliable and perfectly smooth. And only when it becomes perfectly smooth, then he puts it on the wheel and he works it up into a vessel. And then, after he makes a vessel out of clay, you know what he does with it? He lets it dry and he puts it into an oven. And it gets incredibly hot and that clay practically melts in the oven. And all those little particles of clay fuse together into a kind of glass we call ceramic. And once it's been fired in the oven, then it becomes something that is useful to us. Before it's fired in the oven, it's nothing but a lump of dry clay. But once it's gone through that fire, it's forever a useful vessel. My friends, Jesus Our Lord, our Savior, is the Good Shepherd. He is the one who leads us beside the still waters. Yes, he leads us through the valley of the shadow of death. Did you catch that? He's the one who leads us there to that valley of the shadow of death. Yet we can fear, we need to fear no evil because he is there with us. His discipline, his rod and his staff, that's those trials. His rod and his staff may seem difficult to bear in the moment, They bring comfort and they bring joy. In yet another metaphor, he is the refiner of gold. And though he brings us through the severest trials, though we may feel like we are burning in the oven, yet our lives become purified as the finest gold. In yet another metaphor, he is the master potter, molding and shaping our lives to fulfill his divine purpose. My, own, my only question, my friends, is will you let him? Will you follow him? Will you learn, as he says in John chapter 10, to know his voice, to follow the good shepherd, to enter his fold, to abide in relationship with him? Will you trust him through every trial, knowing that he is the one who will bring you through? Trust him, my friends, and he will take your life beyond your wildest imagination. In closing, I want to invite you to sing with me hymn number 567, Have Thine Own Way, Lord. Hymn number 567.
Lord and Father in heaven, you are the great shepherd, the good shepherd, and we, your humble flock. You are the master potter, and we are the clay. Lord, we pray that not because of us, but because of you, you will make us into what you want us to be. Lead us by those springs of living waters. And Lord, because of your great love, take us to yourself. Lord, as we go through the trials of this life, may we ever remember that you are there with us, that you are refining us as silver and gold for your palace. And Lord, we thank you and we praise you for this. In Jesus' name, amen.